Are we all here this morning? Blizzard of 88 returns in 56. This hasn't been an easy week for some of you, that I know. The spirit has been flowing strongly. And uh, it is for this reason that the Master said the way is not easy. As human beings, we are made up of theories and beliefs, false education, false religious knowledge, superstition. And as I indicated the other evening, very few people have been brought up in a Christian faith. Most people are brought up in the Hebrew faith at least most in this country. The Old Testament is more taught and believed in than the New Testament. And I'm sure you will not find many people in all this land who do not believe that not only God punishes us and God rewards us, but more especially that if we get on the right side of God, God will slay all our enemies. God is a God of vengeance. Most of the theories about God, most of the teachings about God, are from the Old Testament, I mean in the Occidental world. And uh, it is for this reason that when we come in contact with the Spirit itself, that we have severe experiences, just as a person would have who was mistaught on any subject and then came face to face with the correct teaching. The most difficult part would be emptying out the old bottles, developing a capacity to permit the old forms to be broken up, making way for some new wine. And that's our trouble. Every time that we are faced with some absolute spiritual truth, it does something violently to us. It acts violently upon us because we unconsciously reject it. We are comparing it with that which we have believed, that which forms a, not only a belief but part of our absolute conviction. There is no part of us more confirmed in our errors than our religious beliefs because those are the things we would cling to. Those are the things we would hug to us beyond all others. As a matter of fact, as you so well know, we would kill for them. It has been done all through the ages. Men have killed for their religion or for their concept of God and have done it believing they were martyrs. 
Now, we too inwardly are martyrs to our religious convictions. And we would sacrifice almost anything in the world before we would give up one of those things that were taught us at our mother's knee. I had an experience like that with uh, one of the directors of the Mother Church in Boston who sent me one day and said, the directors were talking about you the other day and they asked me to speak to you about this just out of curiosity. They want to know if you have ever really been able to accept the Immaculate Conception. Why, certainly. How else could you heal if you didn't accept that? Well, he said they were just wondering, because of your Jewish background and ancestry, whether it really was possible to uh, accept uh, the uh, Immaculate Conception. I don't see how there could be any doubt about that. This man, Jesus, was really a great man. And I don't think I could conscientiously accept anything less for him than for me. Of course, you know, I was immaculately conceived. Well, I mean, that put a different face on that. <laughs> looked at me. I didn't you know that? Of course. Of course, I, I, I have no human father. Then he really was puzzled. As you see, I, I imagine the trouble with you people is that you find it difficult to accept Christian teachings. You've all been brought up in, in the Hebrew so long that you can't accept the Christian teaching. Now, I said, of course, the revelator that I go by said, Call no man on earth your father, for one is your father which art in heaven. And I said, I really believe that. And when people come to me for help, I believe it about them. I don't believe that anything mortal went into their conception or birth, although there are appearances to that effect. Well, that puzzled him, and it took two years before he sent for me and said, I see what you mean and you're right. But he said, what had me fooled was my darling grandmother. I had a Scotch grandmother who brought me up in Kentucky, and I used to sit at her knees, and she would tell me these wonderful stories about our beloved master, and I thought she was talking about one man instead of me. I see that now. And he said, I find in uh, reading Mrs. Eddy's writings again on that subject that she also says that man was never born and will never die and that man is not mortal. So she must have seen that same vision, as I'm sure she did, because I'm sure that Mrs. Eddy came out of her Judaism into Christianity long before some of the rest of the world. Now, one of the terrors that we face are appearances. And it is evident that we are faced with human conception and human birth, and accepting that as a premise, we get into all the rest of the trouble in our earthly span. And so we come to 
another subject. But for this one subject, many more people would be happy reading the message of the infinite way than are being made happy by it. There would uh, only be one thing necessary to change in our writings, and uh, by tomorrow we'd have twice as many readers. Of course, next year we would only have 25% as many, and five years from now only 10% as many. But temporarily we could flourish like a green bay tree if only we would leave out the appearance of error, the nature of error. So many people would be made happy tonight. And they would hug these books to themselves for a year. And they'd say, but they sound so beautiful and so wonderful, but they just didn't work. And then gradually there would be a falling away. Because the nature of error isn't something too nice to read about at first. But as a matter of fact, it becomes our salvation in this work. The nature of error in our writings makes it possible to understand the allness of God, whereas studying the allness of God would never enable us to get through error. Let me illustrate that for you. I don't know of a single religion in all of the world that does not acknowledge that God is the only power. Every religion does that. And because of that, they have to acknowledge that God calls home his beloved ones, sometimes when they're only two, five, ten, or fifteen years of age. God gets weary sometimes, or lonesome up there, and he sends for his innocent little children to keep him company. You've heard ministers tell you at funerals, this is the will of God. God is calling his loved ones home. You have seen people in terrible afflictions and heard that this is the will of God. The will of God is inscrutable. We, we can't see why this is, but God knows it's for our good. God is the cause of these violent acts, storms at sea hurricanes, volcanoes. That's why insurance companies don't have to pay off on them. They're acts of God. Now, how does the church say that God is the only power in the face of all these things? By acknowledging that God's responsible for them. In that sense, then, if you judge by appearances, you must acknowledge that there are sick people, sinful people, dying people, you must acknowledge that there are accidents, that there are all kinds of natural disasters and man-made disasters, and behind all of this you must acknowledge God if God is the only power. Now there's no other way out of that dilemma, and that is the way the church has taken. God is the only power. And therefore, God is calling his dearly beloved home. Now, Scripture very plainly states that death is an enemy. True, it's such a strong one that it's the last enemy that will be overcome. But death is an enemy, according to Scripture. And not only that, the Master, Christ Jesus, declares 
that his mission on earth, the spiritual mission, is to heal the sick and raise the dead, to open the eyes of the blind, to open the ears of the deaf, and yet we're told that blindness and deafness and sickness and death is the will of God. But Jesus came to destroy the will of God, to overcome the will of God. Nonsense, isn't it? But it is a dilemma into which or from which there is no escape if you judge by appearances. Now, <clears throat> there have been spiritually illumined people on earth who have seen that there is no death and some who have even seen that there is no birth. Some who have seen that there is no disease on earth, no reality to any of these negative appearances. And in the beginning, Gautama, the Buddha, founded his entire revelation, not on what God is, but what error isn't. The revelation that came to him under that Bodhi tree was all of these appearances are illusion, are not reality, are not taking place in time or space. They're taking place only in mortal concept, a universal mortal concept, but a mortal concept. Jesus saw that vision because he looked right at Pilate and said, Thou couldst have no power, although all appearances testified to the fact that he was the ruler of the land and had all power. Jesus was able to look at disease and say, What did hinder you? Rise, pick up your bed, and walk. He was able to look at sin and say, Neither do I condemn thee. I don't think that uh, Jesus condoned sin. He recognized that sin as sin doesn't exist. Very little of that principle came to light in following years, although there have been some wonderful mystics on earth, men who have attained conscious realization of God, conscious oneness with God, conscious union with God, and yet in their revelations, in their conscious oneness with God, they did not perceive that accusing God of these errors was making God responsible for them and making them real. And so we have very little on the subject until the original science and health. And in the original science and health, it is made clear again for the first time in centuries it is made clear again that God is the only power and that these appearances of discord do not have reality. That, well, in one place, Mrs. Eddy summed up all of these discords, lumped them together under the term mortal mind, and then said that mortal mind wasn't a thing, it was a term denoting nothingness. And some of her early students, and I happen to know one or two of them in Boston, were marvelous healers, 
without any great knowledge of religion or of Christian science. But they were great healers by virtue of the fact that they had caught that one point and whenever troubles were brought to them, they could smile and say, mortal mind, meaning nothingness, and turn away from it without reacting to it, without fearing it, without protecting themselves from it. Just by that perception that whatever it is that appears in the nature of an evil person or condition can be lumped under that one term, mortal mind, and then the word mortal mind torn up by calling it a term, not a condition, not a person, not a thing, a term denoting nothingness. Now, of course, just as this teaching was lost after the generation of Gautama Buddha, so has it been probably half lost in Christian science. There are still some who catch that point of Christian science, but not too many. In the days of Buddha, the error was this, that those not close to the original master, Gautama, took the word illusion and externalized it. And they said, sin, disease, and death is an illusion but now we have something to get rid of. Oh yes, it's not measles or mumps, it's an illusion, but now let us get rid of the illusion. Whereas originally the meaning was, yes, it's measles or mumps, but it's an illusion, which means it's a mental image of nothingness. An illusion and thought, a mental image, has no substance, has no reality. It's merely... A, an unfounded belief about something, a rumor. But the Hindus from then until now call illusion or maya this world. And uh, then they disregarded and either try to get rid of it by dying out of it or ignoring it. Well, India is not a good example of a true uh, faith continued. But Christian scientists, many of them, made the same mistake. They got out of the habit of saying, I have a cold or flu or grip. So they would call and say, I have an illusion. Will you help me get rid of it? Or will you protect me or give me protective work from uh, the illusion? Will you do protective work for me? Why, a practitioner could be so busy in Boston on Wednesdays and Sundays that he'd have nothing else to do all day and night but sit and do protective work because of the enemy. Now, all of this goes back to human nature, innate human nature, which really has two powers, the power of good and the power of evil, called the power of God and the power of Satan, or in philosophy, good and evil or in metaphysics, the immortal and the mortal. It's always a pair of opposites. In see, instead of seeing one as all and the other as a nothingness, an illusion, a maya, a false sense of something, an ignorance of something. Now, 
if you could perceive the nature of an illusion, for instance, if you could look out the window and see the sky sitting on the mountain and know that it isn't happening out there, it's happening up in your thought, in your false sense of sight, you wouldn't be afraid to climb to the top of the mountain for fear of running into the sky. Or, up until 1492, had they known the nature of illusion, they would have perceived that the sky doesn't settle down on the water out there about eight miles, that that is not a, an externalized physical condition, but a mental image and thought nowhere existing, nowhere existing, except in limited vision of that which is. <clears throat> now, we either have to make statements like God is all, and then when we are faced with appearances of discord, just keep on saying uh, God is all, until we arrive at that conviction or inner realization or else we have to use our powers of thinking, contemplation, until we are able to lift ourselves into the conviction of God's allness. There is but one power, and that is God. But God is not the author of uh, death. God is not the creator of death. God is not the creator of accidents. God is not the creator of storms at sea. God is not the creator of volcanoes and tornadoes. That is absolutely fantastic. You'd have to go back to your Hebrew God to believe any such thing. You'd have to give up your Christianity, which says God is love, to believe that there's anything loving about a ship going down in the middle of the ocean or an airplane falling out of the sky for any reason whatsoever, even for an inscrutable reason. Now, if, if you can uh, outgrow that Hebrew concept of God, if you can even give up the desire that God somehow annihilate your enemies, then uh, you can begin to perceive the Christian the Christly concept of God or revelation of God. And uh, you no longer will battle sin, disease, death, lack, and limitation. You will begin to understand the nature of error as an appearance, as a suggestion, as uh, a presentation that has no concrete existence, no outlined form. Eventually, if you are not afraid to think about religion and about God and about Christ and about this universe, if you have no superstitious scruples about thinking along religious lines, you will come to the ultimate realization of why there is error anywhere on earth, why it ever came on earth, and what it is that continues it. And you'll find that it's fear. It's the fear of the word I. I do not wish to be extinct. 
And a little blister can become an infection that could kill. Me, I, Joel. The only reason we fear unemployment is that we may starve to death or freeze to death. The only reason we don't like any form of sickness, no matter how mild it is, is that it might lead to death. There is only one error on all the earth, and that is our own fear of our extinction. The little I, the me, that would rather be 80 years of age than 60 on earth, or, well, take all the men in the death houses and all the prisons that are fighting and sometimes spending fortunes uh, to avoid the electric chair. Why? What? To stay in a prison the rest of their lives. There's only one reason. It's a fear of extinction. They know that the living is going to be worse than death. But at least uh, it's going to be some form of I continuing walking around in dungeons. And they'd rather have that I walking around in a dungeon than to face what may lie before it. Why is self-preservation the first law of nature? That gives you the whole secret of, of error. Self-preservation. We all want to preserve this sense of I, even in its miseries. People are lying in bed at 80, 90, and 100 years of age, living dead. But they won't let themselves go. No, 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 they're going to cling to that false sense of I, even though it accomplishes nothing on earth but lying in bed the rest of its days. Now, and I'm not saying that as if they could help it, because they can't help it any more than we can help it, and there isn't anybody in this room that isn't doing the same thing. No exceptions. We are all clinging to a sense of I, and it is that I that we want made comfortable. It is that I that we would like to glorify by being president or being dictator or by being uh, this, that, or the other thing. It is that I that we wish to glorify by seeing our name in print or something else. It is that false sense of I that we are catering to, that we are worshiping, that we are feeding, and that we are clothing. And so as long as there is this false sense of I, there will be the fears about it, and that will lead to every error there is on earth, because in proportion as we would lose our fear, the errors themselves would disappear. And the illustration of that is this. I is God. And God is self-maintained and self-sustained, and the minute you give up your concern for the false sense of that I, it goes right along enjoying itself, prospering itself, drawing to itself everything and everyone that it needs for its unfoldment. But entertaining the false sense of I sets up a fear. And uh, a fear of its ultimate extinction, but also a fear of temporary discomfort that is why in uh, the Hindu scriptures it is said that you must face disgrace with the same feeling that you face on earth, with utter indifference, because the fame and the disgrace are about a false sense of you, not of you.
you neither de deserve fame nor ill fame. You deserve nothing. God uh, is the only one. And so as uh, you could give up resentments, as you could stop resenting thrusts at the full sense of yourself, you wouldn't be meeting any. In the same way as you could give up any desire for recognition, for honor, you would be losing that false sense of self and there would be less of sinful desires and less of disease and an absolute impossibility of death. But as long as there is a sense of self that welcomes recognition and fights rumors about itself and gossip and slander, that is the catering to a false sense of I. Now, the nature of error, you see, reveals the nothingness of all these uh, evils in the world, the non-power of them, by very virtue of the fact that their only claim to existence is having a false sense of I to exist in and act upon and through. Without that false sense of I, where would error be? Where would it be? If there were no I to be sick, where would sickness be? If there was no I to sin, where would sin be? If there was no I to die, where would death be? In the same place that sound would be, if there were no one out there to hear it. It just wouldn't be sound. It wouldn't be there. And so there would be no death if there weren't a person to die. Then isn't the error, that sense of person that says, I am separate and apart from God, that there is a me separate and apart. Isaiah saw all this. He said, there is no God but me. There's no God but me. In other words, there is only one God, therefore there can only be one me. And he saw and felt and realized no selfhood apart from God. He couldn't speak of himself as man because that false sense, that separate sense of selfhood had disappeared. Now, you can see how emotional we could get talking about God and the Lord and Christ and spirit and soul and all the rest of this and uh, just be enthralled with the beauty of it and all the time ignoring the fact that we were being eaten up by a false sense of self even while voicing uh, these uh, poetic beauties about a God or the God, always acknowledging a selfhood apart from our own. Whereas when you sit down and really think through God's allness, you must come to the conclusion spiritually that God's allness does not embrace a single error. God's allness does not embrace a single death. That is why it is said that a sparrow cannot fall. A sparrow cannot fall, period. You say, I've seen them. 
Certainly. So have you seen cemeteries and hospitals and mental institutes. And are you going to be like the religions of the world and say, well, God's the only power. He made them. If God made those conditions, you know, he didn't provide enough places for them to be taken care of. He didn't go the full distance. If he provided sickness and insanity, we ought to have a lot more hospitals and insane asylums than we have. I'm sure if God provided those conditions, he would have provided places for them to be in. Not left the world going around sick and crazy, but no place to be in. No. No, I, I can't go with that. Neither can you when you stop to think. God's allness does not make God responsible for death, not even the death of your enemy. Certainly Hebrew scripture says that when God uh, was on the field, all the enemies died. It may well be that some of that are just figures of speech. It may be that in the mind of the prophet, that they knew whereof they spoke. But in using that language to the people, they accepted it literally, that the enemy must lie dead outside the walls. Not that I believe all of the Hebrew prophets knew this, but there must have been some like Isaiah, Elijah, Moses. Now, do not look to God to destroy your enemies unless you just accept one enemy, a false sense of self. And then truth, of course, will annihilate that without any question or doubt, but it won't leave any corpses lying around. You won't have to worry about funeral expenses. Yes. God is a destroyer but a destroyer of the false images and thought, not of persons and not of conditions. For there are no persons to be destroyed and there are no conditions to be destroyed any more than the principle of mathematics destroys the five at the end of two times two. It doesn't destroy anything except the belief that two times two are five. A false picture it destroys. That's all, but it doesn't destroy a thing or a condition. It doesn't even correct a thing or a condition, for there is no thing or condition to be corrected. There is only that false image and thought which looks like five where four should be. And so it is, when we speak of all forms of error as illusion, false appearance, suggestion, temptation, as we do in the writings, it doesn't mean that those things exist out here. It means they exist up here where they have to be corrected. That is why in the new chapter in the infinite way, begin your spiritual life with the understanding that all conflicts must be settled within your own consciousness. How could they be if they exist out there in a patient or a student? or a neighbor. It would be an impossibility to uh, settle these conflicts if the conflicts were external to you. But they aren't. There isn't any conflict going on in us or around us or about us 
that we cannot resolve within ourselves and then see the picture change outwardly. Uh, anyone can prove this by taking some person toward whom they have some deep prejudice or other, or whom they feel has a deep prejudice against them. And instead of going to that other person, stay at home for a few days or a few hours uh, each day for a while, go inside yourself and begin to understand that person from the standpoint of God. Is God beholding anything other than its own image and likeness? As a matter of fact, does anything exist in the world but the image and likeness of God? Is Genesis wrong when it says that God created all that was made and all that God made is good? And if God made all that was made and all that God made is good, then this person toward whom I have this feeling or who seems to have this feeling toward me, that very person must be this image and likeness of God, must be this God consciousness, this offspring of God, this God unfolded, revealed, disclosed, and uh, we will keep doing that every single day until an answering feeling comes within us which you will recognize as love. You will commence to feel, have a feeling of love toward that person or compassion or understanding. You won't mind then whether they're angry with you or not. And uh, you can't be angry with them again, but you'll say, well, but if they want to be mad at me, let them be, but I can't be. And then you'll find how quickly they will come around and uh, make the change. Now, that's a very simple thing to do once. If you're unfortunate enough to have 20 or 30 of those people, it isn't so easy because you have to repeat that process over and over and over again until it becomes an automatic one. But then uh, you have the same thing not only with persons, but you have the same thing with uh, all of the experiences of life. It even works with an automobile that gets cantankerous. You'll find after you've been fighting your automobile long enough that if you sit back and begin to see it also in the same light that all of a sudden it will respond more readily to your activity. There's no limitation to where this goes. None whatever. I have witnessed it in war, that the very moment the realization came, that was one of the first things long before I was in the practice, long before I knew anything of science except that I was reading the books. But in the First World War, that was the uh, realization that changed my whole life, doing protective work, and then realizing God must be awfully stupid. Just because I know these words is going to let me run around with this gun and this machine gun and a 4.7. Uh, and what a nice field day I'm going to have meeting those Germans because they don't know these words that I'm saying, that I'm hid with Christ and God and I'm something special. Now, you know, that, that came is a very foolish thing. Then, uh, a few days later, when I knocked the Bible off the stand and in great big electric... Uh, lights that said, neither pray I for these alone, but for all them which believe. And then I saw there was no such thing as protective work. 
There is no such thing as protecting a human being from anything. The only protection there is to the image and likeness of God, and that won't extend to a human being that's out killing. Not if he's killing from the belief that in killing someone else he's protecting his own, in destroying someone else he's gaining, it will protect the man who is out nearly as a citizen rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. You see, there uh, are two different relationships in our experience. If, as citizens of a country at war, we respond to that call and answer, we are fulfilling it more in the sense that, well, if someone has to die, I'd rather die than send someone out in my place who may not know about immortality. As far as I'm concerned, it makes no difference whether I go today or tomorrow, since I already have the conviction of immortality, but I may be saving somebody else the experience. Now then, going out in that sense, there is protection, because one is not governed by the motive of self-preservation. Where the motive of self-preservation is, believe it or not, there is death. Because the sense of self-preservation would save itself at the expense of the other fellow's self. Now will you tell me what makes it right to kill to save myself at the destruction of yourself? If myself is so important, what's wrong with yourself? And so you see that the very human nature itself is the slayer. Human nature is the slayer of the other fellow and of us. For its first law is self-preservation at anyone's expense. Let it be whom it may. That is one of the sinful things about war. That parents, after they've reached 40 or 50 or 60, will send their children out to protect their lives. As if their lives were more valuable than the 18, 19 or 20 year old children who haven't had a chance yet to get started. And that's what we do, every one of us. We say, you go out and get killed and preserve our lives here at home. Our lives are half gone already, but the other half is more valuable than your whole one. Someday parents will realize that, and they'll never again permit a government to go to war, because they'll say, I don't mind you're going to war, but you send me and not my son. And by the time that happens, there'll be no wars. Wars aren't inevitable. Wars are the result of human laziness, mental laziness. People won't think. If there were 75 million thinking people in America to say, why kill my 18, 20-year-old boy when my life's half gone now? Take my life and kill it. There'd be no more war because the fellows in Washington wouldn't go. Or in any other nation. Now, include me out. <laughs> as citizens, however, we must fulfill our duties as citizens. And if anyone is to be killed, let it be us, rather than those who are not yet aware of their immortality. Or if someone has to kill, let it be us because we don't really believe we're killing anyone. We know their immortality. 
So with us, there is less of harm than there is to those who really and truly believe they're doing something great and noble in killing or offering themselves to be killed. But, so far as spiritual wisdom is concerned, don't you ever accept the fact that destroying a people is going to save you. Because the little old law of as ye sow, so shall ye reap is still in operation. Don't you ever believe that in enslaving somebody else that you are gaining your freedom, that little old law of the master, which existed long before the master, still operates. As ye sow, so shall ye reap. As ye do unto another, so it will be done unto you. And every country on the face of the globe and every country in history that has ever become a great, great, great power through its armies or navies is now lying in dust. And the few remaining ones are on the way out. Don't you ever fool yourself. There is no way of beating cosmic law. It operates. The mills of the gods grind slowly, but they grind exceeding small. There is no way to do it. As ye do unto another, so it will be done unto you. As you believe about another, so it will be believed about you. I've always been a little bit fascinated with the question and answer. In Mrs. Eddy's day, she was asked, do you think you'll ever be a millionaire? And she says, not while I believe there's a poor man on earth. She knew whatever belief she entertained and thought would have to come home to roost because it would be her belief. And so it is. Whatever I believe is my belief and I must pay the penalty for my belief. And if I believe uh, that sin, disease, and death are the realities of existence and uh, that there are those really suffering from them, then must I accept sin, disease, and death for myself. When I understand that they exist as a false sense of existence without reality, without law, without cause, without substance, then I annihilate them for those who come to me as patients or students, but I likewise annihilate them for myself because there is but one self. So, you see now, don't you, that whenever presented with the problems of the world, if you can bring yourself to the realization, you know, fear is at the basis of that, and fear isn't a power, you can have some very wonderful healings. If you understand that it's a false sense of self trying to preserve itself, and that that isn't a power, you can have wonderful healing. By understanding the basic nature of error to be a fear about self, and there is only one self-God, you do not react to the fears of your patients or students, and they quickly become freed, because one with God is a majority. That's the principle on which healing is based. One with God is a majority. One knowing the truth can set thousands of patients free. But you must know the basic truth, and the basic truth they're suffering from isn't the allness of God. No, they're not suffering from that. They're suffering from the fear of a selfhood apart from God. And as long as you know there is no such selfhood, you won't entertain the fear. And you'll be free, and your being free will set them free. Do you see that? The nature of error is important. 
true. There is only one selfhood, which is God. But there is this sense of selfhood which we all entertain and uh, about which our fears develop. Now, recognize the fact that we're suffering from nothing but a fear about ourselves, and then realize that there is no such self. And then you will have the nature of error all tied up in a cotton string. And you can put it away on the shelf and let it rot. There is never a conflict with person or condition, but rather a false concept mentally entertained about person, thing, circumstance, or condition. Therefore, make the correction within yourself rather than attempt to change anyone or anything in the without. Now, just think. You see, God wrote that thing, and that's why it's so much shorter than the way I told it. There, too, you can see how God acts. He gives you a whole wisdom in a, in a short sentence of paragraph. Now let's come to the subject of prayer, where we left off last night. <clears throat> prayer is the inner vision of harmony. This vision is attained by giving up the desire to change or improve anyone or anything. <clears throat> now you watch a wisdom like that, take a wisdom like that into your work when you're called upon for healing and ask yourself, is that what I'm doing? Am I trying to change someone? Am I trying to change a condition? And that will correct you right away and bring you back. And then you'll begin to see, yes, I guess that's what I've been doing. I've had a fear about this person or condition and uh, I've tr been trying to change it. Now what am I supposed to do? if I'm not supposed to change a person or a condition. And in the study of these wisdoms, you will see what you're supposed to do. You will see ultimately that prayer is an awareness of that which is by seeing it and not by making it so. In other words, you don't make harmony. You don't even make it by a mental or spiritual process. Prayer is an inner capacity to see the perfected man or universe of God. It isn't possible by seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, or smelling because the five physical senses are aware only of a false sense of man. Therefore, they can't even visualize a man. You have to get beyond the thinking mind into that inner soul capacity, into that silence where the spiritual reality is revealed to you. You don't create it. It's revealed to you as already existent, in spite of any of the appearances. To pray is to become aware of the harmony without a mental effort on your part, that is, without a mental effort toward making it so. Don't try to make it so. Don't try to create harmony. Don't try to bring about harmony any more than you would try to bring about two times two is four. Become aware that two times two are four. That's your part. The creation, two times two is four, existed before Abraham was. Our function is to become aware of it. Harmony, in your experience, already exists. The point is to become aware of it. And we become aware of it, first of all, by realizing that the persons or conditions are not what they appear to be. And instead of trying to change them, 
going within to get acquainted with them. The best way to do that is to not think of getting acquainted with them, but getting acquainted with God. The moment you get acquainted with God, a miracle happens. You know your patient. You know them face to face. You know who they are and what they are and what makes them tick. For the simple reason that having become aware of God, you have become aware of all that constitutes your patient. Because that which is your patient or student, really and truly, is God in evidence. The eyes won't testify to that, neither will the hearing or the tasting, touching, smelling. <clears throat> but in that inner chamber of your being, when you come face to face with God, you'll find that you have come face to face with the Son of God. Because the Father and the Son is one. <clears throat> Prayer is the absence of desire in the recognition of is. Now some of you have read the statement that desire is prayer and wonder if this is a contradiction. No. No, not any more of a contradiction than ask and you shall receive. Yet don't ask. There is no contradiction. When desire is spiritual, it is prayer. When the desire for something spirit is... When the desire is for something spiritual, it is prayer. When the desire is for spiritual awareness, spiritual reality, spiritual man, spiritual supply, spiritual health, it's prayer. Because it's a desire for awareness, spiritual awareness, spiritual understanding, spiritual discernment. In that sense, desire is prayer. But Prayer is the absence of desire for person, place, or thing, condition, or circumstance. Just as asking for parking places, or asking for automobiles, or asking for homes, asking for companionship, praying for them, is error. There is no such thing as answered prayer in that direction. But asking for illumination, asking for light, asking for the realization of God, asking for it, praying for it, knocking it, even demanding it is all right. Because when you're asking or even when you're demanding, you're just really demanding that that obstruction in your own thought get out of the way. You're not demanding anything of God. You're demanding that your own sense of ignorance be uh, removed. You're really talking to yourself when you're asking, when you're desiring, when you're begging and pleading for light. You're not asking God because God has any more power to withhold it than the sun has to withhold light or heat. No use of uh, You may have to not pray for warmth and for light, but there's no use directing that to uh, the sun. And so it is. We do pray for spiritual illumination, but what we're really praying for is that our own sense of uh, self get out of the way because that's what's blocking it. Be sure that your prayer is not an attempt to influence God. Well, you know, there isn't any of us who couldn't spend a year on that one sentence. If you were to really and truly stand in back of yourself and watch yourself when you're praying and meditating, 
Don't you think you'd find a little trace of an attempt to influence God? Oh, I think sometimes a big attempt. Yes, we're all guilty of that. I know these things only came through me because of my own guilt. They would never have come through to Jesus because he wasn't tempted like this. But it's only because I have attempted to influence God or I have attempted to correct people and conditions that these uh, wisdoms have been given to me. They weren't given to me to correct you. They were given to me to correct me. I'm just sharing them with you. Certainly, everything in my writings was not given to you. They were given to me. They weren't given to the world. They were given to me because I am the fellow who most needed them. If you'd ever needed them as much as I did, they'd have come to you. But I needed them, and they've come to me, and all I'm doing is sharing them with you. And if you feel that they apply to you, go ahead and apply them then and use them and get corrected. <clears throat> I haven't succeeded 100%. But I'm trying. Be sure that your prayer is not a desire to improve God's universe. Well, now, Mr. Roosevelt could tell you how hard I worked to improve God's universe <laughs> during his regime. Nobody tried harder. That had to come to me. I had to learn. What happened? Oh, no. We haven't been here that long. <laughs>